Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unersall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And I am so excited to introduce our special guest for today. They are a writer, musician, and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, American Hysteria, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Welcome, Chelsea. We're so glad to have you here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So today we have a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that bring us joy. Maybe they make us laugh or they remind us of a particular time in our life that was nice. Um, The horror movies that make us feel better when we watch them. And I cannot wait to talk about our movie today because it is one of my all-time favorites. And Chelsea, you chose this movie. So what are we watching today? We are watching The Blair Witch Project. Ooh! Ooh, OG! (laughs) Oh, excited! Yes. But before we dig in, or before we enter the woods, if you will, um, we're going to read a brief synopsis of the film in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while. So here's your spoiler alert. And the spoiler is going to be delivered in a little bundle of sticks outside of your tent in the morning, and it may or may not have blood inside. I guess you'll have to open it to find out. It's going to have blood inside of it. (laughs) Your choice if you want to tell the other people in your (laughs) All right. Heather Donahue is a young filmmaker producing a documentary on the legend of the Blair Witch. She's joined by crew members Josh and Mike, who bring the equipment and head with Heather to Burkittsville, Maryland. There, she interviews locals about the Blair Witch legend, which involves missing children and a grisly crime scene on Coffin Rock, which is nested within the nearby woods. The locals believe the legend to varying degrees. Through the interviews, we learn... Rustin Parr was an old-timey forest hermit who turned himself in after murdering seven children in the 1940s. He would take them to his basement in pairs, making one stand in the corner as he murdered the other, then retrieving the next for their terrible turn. There's also the legend of Coffin Rock, where in the 19th century, five men were tied together, their intestines ripped out, and strange writing carved into their faces. Standard forest stuff. (laughs) The crew also meets a woman named Mary Brown, who recalls going fishing as a child in the Burkittsville woods, where she saw a woman covered in hair like a horse emerge from the creek. Naturally, their next stop is in those very same woods. <laughs> it's almost like they never saw the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> okay, I'll stop doing that. Uh, I just really wanted to tee a little bit. Okay. It's a little witch-like. I, I'm down for it. <laughs> That's a baby witch. <laughs> ah, yes. Okay. They leave the car behind, grab their packs, and head into the trees to film and camp. Things get off to a slightly rough start as Heather has trouble leading the expedition and the boys hear cackling in the night. The shoot only goes downhill from there. They get more and more lost, and the noises at night grow louder and more threatening. And someone or something is leaving them gifts. 
Karen-like piles of rocks outside their tent and crafty little stick figures hanging from the trees. It's so crafty. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, <cool>. so, <laughs> I legit almost made a huge one for Halloween this year just to stick in my front yard to freak out all the neighbors, but I couldn't find sticks that were big enough and I, I was lazy. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> somehow the map disappears and morale starts to break down. I should say that is somehow the map disappears. <laughs> <laughs> somehow. <laughs> somehow. Spoiler. <laughs> Mike kicked <sighs> it in the fucking face. Still mad about it. I have thoughts about that. <laughs> yeah, we got lots of feelings. The boys turn on Heather partly because she's in charge and partly because she won't stop filming and partly because they're scared and powerless and anger is a handy distraction. Mike later admits that he kicked the map into the creek because it was useless mm-hmm. and let Heather take the blame for it for like a whole day. Very cool, Mike. I'm not talking to you, Mike. I'm talking to no. all right. <laughs> Movie Mike. <laughs> Always days, my fault. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm never going camping with you. Okay. I would. I would be useless on a camping. Trip. So so would I. I'm like I'm never. Okay. The days wear on. They run out of food and cigarettes, and everything really sucks ass. They are, as they put it, totally fucked. After getting scared out of their tent one night by children's giggling that turns into full-blown tent shaking, they return to the camp at dawn. There, they find that Josh's stuff has been ransacked and there's some kind of blue slime on his clothes. Totally normal, totally cool. The next morning, they wake up to find Josh gone. Heather and Mike decide to head east because the Wicked Witch is from the west, which is about as good of a plan as they've got, so why the hell not? (laughs) That night, they hear someone that sounds like Josh calling for them and screaming in the woods. The next morning, they find a bundle of sticks outside their tent. Heather opens it to find bloody teeth and hair and some other gunk wrapped in a scrap of Josh's shirt. Yike! That night, Heather gives her famous up-the-nose selfie speech where she apologizes to everyone. She feels responsible for what happened because it was her project and ultimately her responsibility. Sure, Mike threw away the map, but it's totally your fault. Mm -hmm. Still searching for Josh or a way out, Heather and Mike discover an abandoned house. This is definitely good and not very, very bad. (laughs) They enter. It's empty and derelict, the walls stained with child-sized handprints. Blink and you miss it, sigils carved into the baseboards. From all around them, they hear Josh's screams. Mike thinks they're coming from the basement, so down he goes. Something hits him and the camera falls. Looking for Mike, Heather goes down to the basement as well and finds him standing in the corner, facing the wall, completely still. She's hit by something unseen and her camera falls to the ground, joining Mike's in the basement dirt. The end? (sighs) Dun, dun, dun. Uh, And that's the Blair Witch Project. I had to restrain myself from being like, woo, all the way through (laughs) that because I just love this movie so much. (laughs) It's really good. (laughs) It really is. So along those lines, let's do a feelings check. And this is when we talk about our first experience with the movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. And Chelsea, I know that you love this movie. Um, So what was your first experience with the Blair Witch Project and how does it make you feel when you watch it? Well, let's see. I was waiting for it to come out because I saw a trailer for it somewhere. My parents let me watch a lot of horror, let me watch a lot of horror movies. And then they also loved horror movies. So when it came out, I had seen the trailer and it was being promoted as real as we all 
remember, um, mm. with the website, with the extra lore that they were putting out and with, um, you know, they were doing things like leafleting college campuses with missing posters. I mean, it was truly like an immersive experience. And so if, if people don't remember or don't know about it, many of us believed that this was real and it was marketed as real and kind of the first found footage film that really popularized the genre. And so I was supposed to go, but I was not allowed to after all, because my parents decided, my mom and stepdad decided to make it a date and not take me. Oh, and I was that's heartbreaking. Really, Aww. really upset. Yeah. And they also probably didn't want to be the parents that brought an 11 year old to the Blair Witch <laughs> Project because it's like optics. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, I'm that guy. <laughs> I that, right. But so I don't even remember how I ended up seeing it, but it was not soon. It was not very soon after that, you know, and I would scour the website and then there was the, the, the documentary that premiered as well on, I think it was discovery channel. Is that right? You guys like the supplementary documentary. Yeah. That kind of laid out even more of this lore that you were talking about, which is so rich and so fascinating. I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then after that, I just made, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the stick figures myself and I used (laughs) to leave them on people's tents when I went camping and on their houses. That's awesome. I was a little, I was kind of a little asshole. So that was (laughs) something I like to do. And yeah, it makes me feel just so, it's just such a good movie and I feel like it just gets such a bad rap. Like it was made fun of ruthlessly. Now it still is, but it's just such a streamlined movie. Like it feels Mm -hmm. like exactly the right length. You can watch it with your friends. It just doesn't take that long. And it just is so smooth. And I, you know, every time I see Mary Brown, that's when I get the most excited. Mm. And, and she was just a, someone who, applied to be a production assistant on the movie and she's just living in that fucking weird little house and, uh, <laughs> with a little stick gate yeah with a little <laughs> stick gate and you know she's just like when she says oh is it like horse fur <laughs> you know I just like yeah so I just think it's um a perfect I think it's a perfect movie that's I'm yeah gonna say it, yeah you know? Yeah, I don't say perfect movie that often. Um, I usually save that for Terminator 2, but I think this one is a perfect <laughs> movie also. <laughs> Mike, what about you? Ooh, so I'll, I'll try to be brief because it's going to be hard. Um, this is one of my probably top five favorite movies of all time. Like, I adore this movie. I heard about it from my best friend like a week or two before it came out. Like, they pointed me towards the website. And I just like dove in and started reading all the mythology and thing like this is, and it was the early days of the web where if like your roommate answered the phone, you would get kicked off the internet at that <laughs> point. And it's something where it's like, it's just so unique to that time where the internet was new and you could find a bunch of stuff, but you couldn't necessarily verify a bunch of stuff like this will never happen again. So, you, but you have all this mythology and like, I'm a, a dude in his early twenties and I know it's not real, but just like the best pro wrestling, I wanted to believe it was real. Like you get sucked in and you're like, just for a minute, I, I'm going to completely buy into the story you're telling me. So that same friend that I caught it in Boston, like opening night, it was opening the opening Friday night. And it was when it was playing in five cities. So it was like Boston, Chicago, New York, LA, and I think like Houston or something like that. So it was like a real big deal to actually get to see this movie. It was completely sold out theater. 
in downtown Boston that I think is no longer there. And it scared the living shit out of me. Like as a guy in his mid twenties <laughs> who grew up, like in my house in the suburbs was, you just walked out of my house, turned right. And you were in the woods. Like that was the pathway. And, you know, you would just go in and you would like tell ghost stories and scare yourself as a child. So it really connected. And I remember coming back to my apartment in New Hampshire. So it was a long drive back. It was two in the morning when I walked in. And as I walked in, my roommate walked out of his bedroom and it scared me so bad that I yelled. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, hey, uh, your rent check bounced. And I'm like, oh, so I yelled again. <laughs> so, But I was legitimately terrified of this movie. And it stuck with me. Like, I wouldn't watch it for years. The next time I watched it was the night Paranormal Activity opened in Boston. So I went back and watched this just on an iPad and it held up. And since then, it's one of those things where I keep revisiting it now over and over again and appreciating more and more about it. It's one where I still want to do an outdoor screening of it in the woods near us with friends. But we've done like backyard movie nights, like under the wooded part of our backyard with friends. And it scared my wife so bad that she thought she was like seeing people standing in the backyard oh, uh, no. under the light. It ter- she wouldn't watch it tonight for a rewatch. She was like, nope, I got to go to bed after this. And mm-hmm. it scared me so badly. I've taken my daughter to see it. I am that dad that takes their 10 year olds to drive-ins <laughs> for like double screenings of like Scream and the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> what a double screening. Yes. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. And I would say like those, those are two of my favorite movies. And I would say they're probably the two most important horror movies from the turn of the century in terms of like what they kickstarted in terms of what scream, like really rejuvenating horror and the Blair Witch Project showing that like, you don't need a lot of money to scare people and mm-hmm. to be really, really successful. I'll leave it there. I hope we can dive into like the behind the scenes stuff and the making of and, but yeah, this is a movie. Like if you hear my other show uh, and I'll point folks to it at the end of this, like I've talked about it for four and a half hours with bonus stuff. So I'll leave it there. (laughs) Laura, what about you? Yeah. I I also love this movie. Uh, I saw it either in 1999 or 2000, depending on when it was accessible on VHS, because I do remember watching this primarily because I watched it with my good friend and they were talking the whole time and we were both just like being dour, little twerpy 14-year-olds that were like, this isn't scary. They're just running in the woods. You know, we were just being little jackasses. And I think it was mainly because I didn't fully let myself get immersed in it. I definitely was aware of the PR and the, is it real? Isn't it real thing? But again, at right at that age, I was trying, I was like a skeptical little dick. So I just wasn't letting myself experience it, experience it fully, probably because I was also like really, really anxious and scared of everything. I watched it as an adult again in my early twenties and it scared the fucking shit out of me. Uh, I, I don't know if I needed the perspective of adulthood and what it really is to feel completely helpless and alone. And, and also so much in this movie relies on your imagination and that sense of helplessness and listening closely to the the sound design is really important in this movie. Just that sense of something lurking in the dark. And it is hard to separate a little bit like my 
emotional reaction to it from knowing, you know, about the production and the PR and, and all of the stuff surrounding it. But I, I, I really do think it's a perfect movie. I mean, it's, it's so tight um, and it's so effective. I don't love the characters, especially like watch repeatedly watching it. I find something to dislike in all of them. Nevertheless, I find something to really admire about all of them Mm -hmm. by the end of it. I feel like I really understand Heather and and kind of relate to her in a, in a difficult way in a, in a way that's like, uh, you know, like she's a family member or something like I completely understand you and I'm struggling, but I, I end up really loving her by the end of it. And I think that's what makes it the end feel really impactful. Even though we've seen like 80 bazillion replicas of this movie by now, I still think this one really holds up and it's still really scary. And it's by far one of the best in the found footage genre. And I'm a huge found footage fan. I just, I eat it up. Yum, yum, yum. Give give <laughs> it to me as much as possible. Um, I still think this is probably the one of the best, if not the best in that genre. Yeah, I am also a huge found footage fan. I say I love found footage when it is done well, when I guess when I decide that I love it. Um, And I think this one is just I said it's a perfect movie, but it's just it it is. And it's a perfect found footage movie, I think, because of the restraint that it has, like what it chooses not to show, like what movie doesn't take that temptation to just put a foot in front of the camera at the very end to show, oh, there's something Mm -hmm. there, maybe. And it just I love that. It doesn't because then we imagine everything. So I remember watching this. um, I had just graduated from high school and I was working at Express in the mall. And I remember I had convinced my boyfriend to take me. And so I remember him walking over and picking me up after we got off. And I walked over to the other side of the theater. And I had heard um, that it would make you sick. Like, I remember that was a big thing. Like, people just weren't used to that shaky camera, I think, at the time. And I had also heard that it was terrifying. And so I was really nervous, but like the good, excited nervous, you know? And it totally lived up to my expectations. I absolutely loved it. And I totally bought it. Like I thought it was real too, because one, I had seen all of the PR stuff, but also like growing up in Nashville, we had the legend of the bell, Witch, Mm -hmm. and so when I heard about all of this, which I still, I don't know if I want to say, I don't believe in the bell, Witch, because I think she might get me if I, if I say that, but, um, so I was like, oh, well, okay, well, if she's ex- if she's real, then the Blair Witch is probably real, too. But for a while, I was like, are you sure you don't mean the Bell Witch? Like, I thought they were, like, conflating the two, you know? And so I just bought it all. And I also think there's part of me that, like, it's more fun to believe, you know? And so I was like, yeah, I'm just going to lean into this. And I just absolutely loved it. This is one of my favorites, but one of the things I've said before is sometimes when a movie, I put it on such a high pedestal, I forget to watch it as much as I want to, you know? Like, I probably went eight or nine years without seeing this movie just because I had thought, oh, I can't put it on while I'm not focusing on it. And so then I would just throw on, like... Uh, you know, Final Destination, which is a movie that I absolutely love, but it's one that I tend to rewatch more. And so I watched it again for um, another podcast, and it had been such a long time since I'd seen it that I had really kind of forgotten a lot of the nuances. And I, this is one that I feel like really grows, you know, like some of them I remember watching and being scared the shit out of me when I was little. And then I watch it now. I'm like, okay, I appreciate this. But this one, like every time I watch it, there's more there Mm -hmm. and I find something else. And like now I watch it and I relate so strongly with Heather and I so like empathize with her and I get so mad at Josh and Mike, which is like, I think by design, I think that's because they're, they're good characters, you know? 
And I feel like there's a lot I could sink my teeth into as far as like the female gaze or like the point of view or like, does the camera make meaning or is it altering reality? So like, I love like really geeking out about that kind of stuff too. And I feel like this movie just has so much of that. So yeah, absolutely love, love this movie. And so let's kind of dip into talking about what it is we love about it. Um, And maybe we can start by talking about found footage in general, because I think we've all said we love found footage, Um, but it's pretty tricky to do right. And I think this movie really, really gets it right, you know? Yeah, and I know there were several movies prior to Blair Witch that are considered found footage. I'm thinking of, um, I'm going to blank on the names of all of them now, like that Nightwatch, BBC, mm-hmm. fo- they're more, but they were more like faux, Ghost Watch, yeah. Ghost, Ghost Watch, yeah um, like faux news broadcasts, mm-hmm. things of that nature. Um, but I think this one solidified what everybody thinks of when they hear found footage. You know, yeah. this was the mm-hmm. first one to really create a lot of the hallmarks of the genre from the shaky hand cam to the like wrap around, you know, this is foot fo- like literally footage that we found in a canister somewhere, you know, yeah, um, there's not really much framing of it, you know, right, right. Yeah. You know, whereas like, oh, I think a lot of the imitators added framing and added more documentary aspects to it that I mm-hmm. think take away from the starkness of the, like what the Blair Witch is yeah. where, where it feels really like an unfinished product you know they it's not like someone went in with a few exceptions and like edited a bunch of stuff you know um it feels really really raw and the whole pr apparatus around it obviously adds added to it's hard this is what i mean by it's hard to separate i don't know i think that it would feel as real and as haunting and as believable if all of that stuff never happened and it was just released as a movie but it's really hard for me to say whether or not um that's true because you know, it, it's just also tied together in my head. But I do think mm-hmm. that the things that I just listed are are the reasons that, you know, I think you could have applied that same PR, you know, machine to a much lesser movie and it wouldn't have been as successful. You needed all the ingredients in the stew for this one to come out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Chelsea, where your show like deals a lot with like urban legends yeah. and mythology and like, I don't say debunking, but like exploring your spelunking into those. Like, how did you find like looking back on this like years later, like how the mythology adds to it or does it detract in any way from like as a movie? Does it detract from it? Like, ah, this is just a bunch of malarkey at that point. I mean, I think it so easily could, you know, but for me, the mythology, maybe like that, that Discovery Channel you know, fake documentary. Sometimes I like it even more than Mm. the movie, which is crazy that there could be two Mm -hmm. pieces of media that I could like that much that's coming from Mm -hmm. the same, you know, universe. And, uh, Mm -hmm. but the lore, I think it just was so right. And it was so fragmented and the fragmentation and incompleteness. It's almost like some sort of, uh, like a poem you would find in like archaic Greece or something where there's like Mm -hmm. words missing or, you know, like the Gnostic gospels or some Christian thing where they're, you're still trying to piece it together. And it would have been 
so easy for them to do some kind of like here's like the book of the dead and here's like a very clear like uh linear story but it wasn't it was just like pieces of this Mm -hmm. this location and things that had happened there and I think that that made it so authentic and it was an urban legend I mean it's definitely would qualify I would say as an urban legend these kids are going in or these college age people are going into mm-hmm. to check out. And I think also just on the same tip of um the found footage, there's something about the characters that feel also found to me. And uh they're not there is nothing in this movie in the Blair Witch Project of romance. There's no mm-hmm. um there's no resolutions. There's nothing that occurs that feels um, constructed by Hollywood in any way. And mm-hmm. I these characters, I don't like any of them. Like, I can relate to them at different times. Like, even mm-hmm. Heather, like, I so understand Heather. But I couldn't, like, go as far as to say, like, I would hang out with Heather. You know, I don't want to hang yeah. out with these people. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. Uh, they're <laughs> not, you know, they're not... The, they're just not likable characters. Yeah. And that was rare back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's rare. And well, it's actually not very rare now. I feel like all we watch now are like horrible narcissist characters. <laughs> but they're not like that. egregiously. No, unlikable. no, they're just you like, know, like normal, not designed to be normal. Annoying. Three dimensional. Yeah. They're just, yeah. Like, they're just yeah. normal people who have bad qualities and are annoying yeah. and are assholes and are put in this, yeah. you know, horrible, scary situation. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that, that that adds to all of it. And it adds to the lore in that it like caps it off with this very modern, realistic, like interaction with this lore mm-hmm. where she's just like, you know, I, like some of my favorite scenes are where Heather is, is reading, like she's pretending to read from the book for shots for the documentary, you know, and she's like, mm-hmm. just, yeah. it's so cheesy and self-aware. And that's where you get a little, there's a little scream in there I feel like there's Mm -hmm. like a little uh, self-awareness there that I really yeah I really love I I totally buy Heather as a like college-aged filmmaker who has seen some things and is trying to imitate them and and just using like black and white 16 millimeter Mm -hmm. and those shots of her you know reading the book or trying to find the the cemetery to get these very kind you know or the the opening shots you know it reminds me um a little of obviously I think it was almost a a nod to to Blair Witch was uh, Grave Encounters is another Mm -hmm. one where they start with that Mm -hmm. reality TV crew but it's that like it knows what kind of media it's interacting with and it does it's just such a pitch perfect job of of laying that out and you totally buy these characters as being part of that world part of the beauty of this so we keep going back to that curse of the Blair Witch documentary and that was originally part of the film like the first cut of it what had this film shipped gears a little bit like a year before the Blair Witch there was another kind of like pseudo found footage, more of a mockumentary film, um, which covered very similar ground as the Blair Witch. It dealt with like the myth of the Jersey Devil. It was called The Last Broadcast. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating watch. I would definitely recommend checking it out. I believe it's streaming in a few places. I believe you can find it on YouTube. It's the Blair Witch done not quite as well. And there's a little bit of controversy as whether or not like the Blair Witch ripped off this movie, but they had already like filmed it and had it in the can by the time the last broadcast hit what they did say is like they may have restructured after seeing the last broadcast or like you know what what if we do our movie as a straight this is just the footage that was discovered in the canisters and all the mockumentary things we'll take out and we will put in another 
section. Like we'll do that as like an add-on or a bonus feature or as a way to kind of market the movie at that point. So it was like, that's a kind of a fascinating thing to watch. Like it was a Blair Witch Project didn't create found footage. I mean, you could go back to like Cannibal Holocaust or the mm-hmm. last horror movie uh, is two movies that kind of use this conceit to the point where with Cannibal Holocaust, a director actually had to bring out the cast at one point yes. to a court and say, <laughs> I didn't kill the cast. Uh, mm-hmm. They're here. And very similar with the Blair Witch Project, when it premiered at Sundance, there were missing posters off of Josh, Mike, and and Heather. And they weren't allowed to go to any of the marketing stints yeah. or Sundance. So you have this massive movie that's going to hit, and you have to like sit back and watch it happen to their career's detriment, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I actually found an essay that Heather wrote when the sequel was mm-hmm. released, because I think they printed their obituaries, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, like Heather she, talks about her mother getting letters, sympathy mm-hmm. letters, but also like hate mail. Like it's your daughter's fault that these kids are dead. And that is just like it's very kind of Tom Sawyer-esque with like Tom and Huck like watching their own funeral. Yeah. And what that would be like. There's something very disturbing about that realization of like hearing what strangers it's the proto-Twitter, basically. Yeah. It was like this campaign to <laughs> You know, and I think like if there's any maybe theme, hopefully this show will hit. It's like justice for Heather Donahue. I got a big old soapbox about that. (laughs) Yeah, you know, she was so good in this performance. It's like a yeah, no, deeply flawed character Mm -hmm. that it it maybe hit too many notes, too many real notes for some people. Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. To the point where I think it really hurt her. Like personally, like did some real damage to her psyche. Like here, oh yeah. Can't blame her. I mean, that's... Well, now she's just a weed farmer now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like there was a lot of critiques at the time of her performance mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the, the quality of the acting, but I, I never understood that because I genuinely find her performance extremely believable. Yeah. I find, I mean, obviously, that selfie camera shot is so iconic and she's mm-hmm. snotting everywhere and stuff. You can see why people made fun of it. Mm-hmm. But but it's like it's a really, really good performance. It feel yeah. I feel I just believe her so much. And I she is annoying, but it's the character that's annoying. Like she's yeah. just yeah. doing she almost like did too good a job playing mm-hmm. this kind of Dead. slightly pompous college filmmaker, you know, <laughs> like she just yeah. she nailed it. Well and the thing that so I was reading this essay and I pulled a couple of quotes that really kind of broke my heart a little bit because the other thing I was thinking is they used her real name you know like that, that they used names, all their yeah. real names yeah. right which like I'm somebody who's very like I'm very protective of my information and like my where I live and just as being a woman you just have to you know and so I think that it goes along with all of that this is real like she this I wonder what she is actually like how much of this was her personality and we can talk a little bit about like the way they filmed this because mm-hmm. I think part of the reason these characters feel so real is because a lot of it is real. You know, they were actually camping in the woods. Like, they were actually scared. They were reacting. At a certain point, you stop acting Mm -hmm. and you just kind of are lost in the woods, you know? They basically, like, Greg Hale, who's one of the producers, was ex-military, and he used what's called SARE training, where you take, like, a military recruit or, like, a trainee, and you dump them 
in the woods and it's basically like capture the flag except the flag is a human being it's like that ice tea movie like the i can't think the deadliest game or something where they hunt people um so greg hale very much used like the ice tea movie <laughs> yes it is it is so there's an ice tea movie where there he gets is, hunted, I mean... so you know uh but i can't think of it i think it's the deadliest game but I the can't. most dangerous game thank you um yeah. something like is that. it the most okay know. well yeah because um, there's a couple with that th- we don't need to get uh, i'll right. stay out of this rabbit <laughs> <laughs> but it basically like they were given a GPS and told go to these coordinates and here's a bucket and there's like three milk bottles and they each were given limited bits of information. Mm-hmm. So like Mike would get the information like later today you're going to tell them you kick the fucking map in the water. Josh and Heather didn't know that. They would get like Mike is going to tell you something later and you're going to react to it. The end scene when they're like going into the house They basically said, you're going to hear some screams. You're going to run towards them. Like that was the extent of their direction at that point. They had a code word where if they said taco, that was their cue to break character. Otherwise they were to be in character. And they say like the best night they had, they came out of the woods. They went to like a local house and had hot chocolate and used a real toilet. Oh, Oh, wow. They were given less food every day in order to like stay hungry. And they were shot at over like nine days or two weeks. So each day they're getting. Yeah. So it's kind of like it's you can not do that on a union film shoot. (laughs) Hell no. Um, That's not tolerated. (laughs) Christian Bale see, hears this and he's like, ah, lightweight. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, on some level, it's such brilliant filmmaking because mm-hmm. you get such authentic performances out of these, these actors because the filmmaker side of me is like, I would never do that to my performers. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I did, uh, again, this is the movie I want no one to ever see, but we went to Lake Mead in Nevada and shot a found footage, you know, fake horror movie mm-hmm. over the course of like, I think four days. And it was like in the blazing, it was like August in Nevada because everything was cheaper then. And it was like blazingly hot. And I, there was a point when we were out on this lake in the middle of nowhere at night. And like, I really thought we were, we were all going to be killed. At one point we had these two s- swimmers came out of the darkness and like, were like help and like came out to the and they had gotten like lost from their pontoon and they were like wasted and we were all like oh my god they're gonna murder us i was like don't let them into the boat don't let them into the boat we did end up taking them back to their pontoon but like we had had to we used like our camera lights you know in the middle because you can't see shit on the water and you're not Mm -hmm. actually supposed to like sail around because there's all these rocks and so like two of the crew the the crew who were also the cast like held up the camera lights to get them back to their pontoon where they had like their two friends were like passed out drunk. (laughs) We were all like, are you going to be okay? But anyway, the point that I'm getting at here is like, you really start to feel it, you know, when you, when you are immersed in that environment. And I mean, there's something, and I'm really going to try not to go down a rabbit hole. There's something to all of that, the locations when you're filmmaking that really can affect your performers. Mm -hmm. The thought of like not feeding them you know, sufficient amounts of food and all that kind of stuff is probably further than I would ever want to go because it starts to feel abusive to me, to your performers. But if you sign up for it, if you all agree mm-hmm. to it, I do think, I mean, I think that's part of why this movie yeah. is so successful. 
Even when she is like laying or the the shot you're talking about, the the scary movie parody shot where she's like snotting all over herself. (laughs) What other movie would put that in? You know what I mean? Especially in 99. I mean, now, sure, they, you know, but like in 99, that was like, like revolutionarily like ugly and gross and like Mm -hmm. and, and real in that way. And I mean, she had to be pretty upset like yeah. actually upset i think to get mm-hmm. that to be that oh yeah like real cuz i don't know that never struck me as as goofy or funny when i watched it it struck me as like actually really 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 scary because yeah. it was mm-hmm. it was so unhollywood it was so mm-hmm. uh yeah it, it's just what i imagined would be happening if someone were going through exactly yeah. what she was going through so yeah, 100%. you're not going to be worried about what you're. No, not at all. Because you think you're going to die. You yeah. know. Yeah, it's a character that knows that she's going to die. Yeah, yeah. That, like she's basically she's saying her goodbyes and she's just hoping that someone finds them. And like, there's no hope at that point. Yeah. And we typically go to movies for escape. Like we go there because we want to get lost in something that's grander than ourselves. Like, like the old Superman tagline: "We we believe you'll believe a man can fly." Like that's why you go to movies. And this was a movie that wasn't afraid to be ugly, to be grounded, and to be to sh- be very real in a way that other movies of that time just weren't going to allow you to be. I mean, 1999 is the year that, like, George Lucas returns and does The Phantom Menace. It's the year that The Matrix comes out. Like, The Sixth Sense comes out. Like, it's a year of, like, these terrific, fantastical films. And in the middle of that... You have something that's made for the price of a Honda Civic that is able to say, like, no, like being grungy and dirty and flawed and deeply human is the most terrifying thing of all. And I think that's one of the things to really love about. Yeah. And it feels so real, too, because they're not even really spectacular woods, you know, Mm -hmm. like the it's just a lot of trees and some creeks, you know. And I think Mm -hmm. like if you look at the remake now, it's like they I think they added a lot more like interesting visual set design. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie really just trusts itself to be what it is. And that's why it's so effective, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I think about like what it would have been like to be filming this and how scared I would have been. Like the premise of the movie is that they go out into the woods to make a movie and Mm -hmm. they get haunted by a witch. And so if I'm like going out into the woods to make a movie about a witch and scary shit starts happening, like in the middle of the night, you know, maybe like that's exactly what I would be thinking is happening. Like, is this actually the filmmakers or the directors doing this? Or is there actually a fucking witch out there? And even if like, it was the director's like, who's going to protect you? Like, that would just be so scary. Yeah. No fucking way I would go into that house in the middle of the night. I don't care how many directors no. are around me. You know, They're like, I'm piecing out. We've lost our lead. I know. Yeah. Like, taco, taco. <laughs> taco. <laughs> no, I mean, <sighs> just having had that experience, you really, it does start to put a whammy on you. And ours was mm-hmm. meant to be like kind of comedic and stupid. And it was about aliens. But like, you know, it was like, I, you know, you really start to believe when you're <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere at yeah. night, knowing you can't, like you have no, reception you know it, it's a whole different thing yeah i'm i want to talk about how subtle it is just from even like a visual perspective i think that there's a way it could have gone real especially with that climax at the house like it could have gone into real cliched territory yeah and i i believe you speak about this on your podcast chelsea i'm not sure if you want to talk at all about like the satanic ritual sure. elements of this and where they could have gone with it <laughs> sure i'm i'm very interested in that well you know 
In the uh, Book of Shadows, right, which came out, I don't know exactly when, a couple years later, um, Joe Berlinger, uh, I had an old podcast that was about true crime, and he's also the director of the um, West Memphis Three documentaries from HBO. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, yeah, so Joe Berlinger really dealt with the satanic panic stuff, which was uh, happening through the 80s and into the 90s. And even in 99, you know, we had Columbine, um, which was very much part of kind of like the second wave of the satanic panic with these, you know, trench coat mafia goth kids, uh, school shooters inspired by Marilyn Manson and his whole satanic bit. So it was kind of like fit into this, this 20 year panic that had been happening over Satan's influence um, and satanic cults and their murders and their child abuses and all the different things, uh, which is a tale for another episode. But basically, <laughs> you know, in 99 would have been a prime time to continue to capitalize as so many movies have on the satanic panic. And in a way, they did it without actually doing it at all. Right. So it was like there was still this this sense of of like coffin rock right and the the rituals that were the bodies tied i think wrist to ankle in like a symbol and then mm. with the symbols carved in like that was very obviously sort of allusion to or images of the satanic panic uh the idea that there were satanic cults in the woods murdering kids and so i think that they really got the pieces of that but did not connect it in any way to Satan, right? So they didn't connect it mm -hmm. to um, to this, this biblical evil in any way. It was, um, you know, there was like hints of that here and there, but really not at all. It was really focused on this particular story in this particular world, this particular evil. And that evil wasn't connected then to some like greater giant, you know, conspiracy or whatever you want to say. Um, so I think they really, really nailed kind of coming out of our interest in Satan and really wanting to hear more and more and always having Satan be the, the center of horror or um, if it wasn't slasher, it was probably Satan. Um, even if it was a ghost, it was probably Satan. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think they, they really did. Always. <laughs> yeah, they really did a great job to, of um, not doing it, honestly, like just not doing it and also not showing the monster, you know, um, yeah. is the best choice that they made. I, you, like, you know, and you said like, like if there had been a foot, you know, at the end, I, I wouldn't like the movie. Like I don't, I it probably would have yeah. ruined the movie in one moment, which movies do mm -hmm. sometimes uh, at they the end. Is. I'm just like, no, stop, stop. I don't want to see that. <laughs> right. And, and exactly. you know, that's, that's part of why Satan, I guess, is so scary for people, right? Too, is that it's yeah. this sort of invisible permeating thing that can take different forms. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just, again, I just think it's perfect film. <laughs> it really is. And it's what I love is that everybody, like all the townspeople have like a different understanding of what the legend is, which is, I mean, kind of like what Satan, everybody kind of has their own version of it, you know? And one of the things I noticed when I was watching last night was that they never really talk about her, the Blair Witch, past, like once the shit starts to go down, they're not like, oh, I bet it's her. Oh, I bet she's mm -hmm. haunting. They're just like, what the fuck is going on? Which I think leans into that, like, they're not trying to create a story either. So we can right. create our own story around it, you know? And it's almost like it's, it would be just 
too terrifying to give it voice to to speak the name yeah. you know in that moment and it's like even when they uncover those like little stick figures which have a very occult feeling to them more in like the folk horror like wicker manny kind of way um i mean you i would want to say like oh this is some kind of like fucking witch cult shit like what's happening you know but mm-hmm. they never they never give voice to that again i completely agree having that house be almost completely empty except for those little handprints. And if you look, there's little like, like sigils like carved into Mm -hmm. the baseboards at various points, like a little triangle and things like that. And um, it it gives that little taste of the occult without doing anything obvious. And Mm -hmm. it's so much fucking creepier when you just get, when you know, I mean, like I think last, last time I was watching it for this, for this episode, I was the first time I noticed the little symbols carved and it was like, mm-hmm. Oh, I got goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps again now because it's all those things hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it makes me think it's like so much more occult, the word occult meaning unseen or hidden, you know, I mean, that is, this is a cult mm-hmm. and it fucking rules. And I just get like so yeah. excited about it. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's just great, great little art direction. Just mm, chef's kiss, truly, and it makes you want to jump down the rabbit hole. Like totally. I want to find out right. more about this, and there is not enough out there for me to ever satisfy that. You yes, know? Yeah. so I Which keep is looking. Great. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of power in the mythology of this and how they explore the mythology within the community because everyone is given different snippets and made to have their own understanding. So there's not like this uniform story where like. The, the first, and this, I forgot until recently, like how fast this movie moves. Like, minute 23, they're in the woods. And for that point on, like, they're lost in the woods. But that first 23 minutes when they're setting up the mythology, every person they interview has like a different snippet or a different understanding. You have like the teenage young woman who is like, ah, oh, my friend goes to Blair High School. Right. And my favorite bit, the mom who like has probably the best line yeah, in the movie the where she's like, I believe enough not to go, uh, to go in there. Yep. You know? My whole philosophy about is, ghosts is that line. Yeah. <laughs> like, and her little kid, and that's not a professional actress. Like that is like just a random person that they got to like deliver this, like we'll give you a little piece of it and you go with it. And like the best is when she comforts her kids. It's like it's not real. And then she looks at the camera and does the, it's so very good. like you can it's see so this good. on the podcast mm-hmm. but you know she it's because everyone has a different understanding and it's not everyone spitting the same story it feels that much more real because that's how it would be oh, like, oh yeah you know and i i wonder chelsea because you do a lot of like research for your own show like how maybe like the globalization of the world has changed how communities interact because it feels like there are less insular communities where we all have our own separate mythologies or town folklore and now it's more everyone has an understanding of everything going on like everything is out there and if that's changed the way urban legends evolve in the modern day well like you said this will never happen again right what Mm -hmm. happened with the Blair Witch Project what they were able to accomplish was only able to be accomplished because the internet existed, but the internet wasn't uh, connected enough yet to Mm -hmm. to double check these claims and to to do all the things we could do now in five seconds. Um, And I think, you know, urban legends are the same, the same way we our urban legends are just really different now, but they have the same heart 
Mm-hmm. You know, they have the same, they're the same stories, the same archetypes, the same mythologies told again and again, just in new ways, kind of ba- usually based around the technology that's telling them. But we just did an Urban Legends episode for our season finale, which was more about sort of the process that that Americans and other people, but you know, we do America, has gone through mm-hmm. understanding urban legends. So through kind of like, we went through scary stories to tell in the dark. We went through, um, mm-hmm. you know, Jan Bruvon's work who d- did like The Vanishing Hitchhiker. And so a lot of work from the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, where these legends were, they were insular, but in other ways they weren't, right? They were usually mm-hmm. ha- like, I think of an urban legend, right? Like the bunny man is happening in this Washington, D.C. area. That was when my mom heard when she was growing up. And then, and do you guys, have you heard about the bunny man? Are you guys nope. East Coast people? Yeah, it was just a, episode, but no. <laughs> yeah, really basic. Like, uh, you know, a hatchet wielding bunny killing people, uh, mm-hmm. children hanging them from a bridge, same kind of thing. But, you know, there's there are those sorts of like, you know, like the phantom clown panic happened in the 80s before it happened in 2016 when people were seeing clowns everywhere and, you know, mm-hmm. they were allegedly luring children into the woods. That happened in the 80s as well. And it happened in different states at the same time. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, so then there's that question of is it is mm-hmm. it something psychological, sociological happening or is it like just a cousin is calling from Philadelphia to California. And then mm-hmm. now this legend kind of starts over here and, and mm-hmm. blossoms out again. So it's, it doesn't happen the same way anymore, but I think in a way it, it does, it's just going to happen in internet communities instead of physical communities and then spread out from, you know, it could mm-hmm. start here. It'll start on Reddit. I don't know. I'm bad. At, I'm not great at the internet, but it'll start in some <laughs> sub, sub community, right? And mm-hmm. then like the Momo Suicide Challenge is a great example. Do you guys mm-hmm. remember that one? Yeah, yeah. I, was, yeah. I was about to bring that yeah. up. But Good yeah, old Momo, yeah. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 the same, you know, he might, that might as well be luring children into the woods, right? Like it, it's yeah. just, but it's luring children into the recesses of the internet and, mm-hmm. and commanding them to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And so these are like, they're just the same stories, but they're told through, through whatever the means of technology are at the yeah. time, which is again, sort of the Blair Witch as well. Um, yeah. Blair Witch was like straddling. It's almost like that is yeah. the, the watershed moment between the verbal and like, you know, uh, urban legends, like, and, and things becoming memes and things becoming viral ideas that get spread more quickly because of the internet as in some ways, because like, you know, being, being my age in my mid thirties, I, I, I was part of the, I'm the ancient skeletal millennial that <laughs> is, is like maybe the only generation to experience life without the internet and with the internet mm-hmm. and and ha- and having that happen at a at a very sort of pivotal moment in life going through puberty and all that kind of stuff uh all that kind of <laughs> stuff <laughs> it, it, it's just very it's a very interesting psychological space to me and i don't really have a fully baked thought here but i just think it's interesting that uh, the blair witch is occupying sort of a similar space between um oral urban legends and and things becoming more digitized and spread that way and and i would say you know urban legends in a lot of ways are like the original memes you know and and right. the original creepy pastas and and now there's almost more proliferation of these ideas they're just happening everywhere and spreading really quickly and then also going away really quickly because everything is being recycled 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 mm-hmm. so i don't yeah. know There's something interesting, too, that you reminded me of that I was reading about, and that is like the end of the oral tradition, right, of legend Mm -hmm. telling, which you could say, I mean, that's arguable when 
actually started to break down. But with the internet, with these urban legends specifically, you have a meme which is unchanging. Whereas you have an urban legend where you'd get like the Blair Witch, you'd have bits and pieces and you would craft it together to tell the story to your friends. So you'd say, okay, Mm -hmm. well, I heard here that this kid got murdered on this bridge, but I also heard he was wearing a bunny outfit, but this guy said it was an axe. This person says it was a hatchet. This person says it happened here. So you you cobble this story together to share with your friend, like like the Blair, kind of exactly how the Blair Witch is cobbled mm-hmm. together, the lore. And, yeah. and you get this fragmented picture. But now with something like Slenderman, you know, for example, which I guess is very similar to the Blair Witch in some ways, mm-hmm. it, you know, you do, you also still have this suspended disbelief that people mm-hmm. are choosing to do to like then add to the mythos and add their little pieces. And then, you know, and then people get murdered eventually yeah. for real. Was so, then you, then yeah. you take a child out to the woods and yeah. you murder them. That's yeah. how it yeah. always yeah. As you do. So <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, I think intended. that is, no, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. but that oral, that oral tradition Thing dying out like the, I, I don't have a fully big thought about it either but it did remind me that that I was reading some kind of mm-hmm. essay about the the death of the the oral legend <laughs> millennials yeah. killed the oral legend um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the the reason that I love urban legends so much is because I think it really reveals like a lot about the person who's telling it. And when I say person, I don't mean like an individual person. I mean, like, why is this one kind of proliferating now? Like, what is the undercurrent of fear that we're trying to like protect ourselves with? And we talked about this a little bit in our Candyman episode. And that's when I love to look at the variations of things. Like if you look at the Lover's Lane urban legend with the boyfriend hanging over the car, there are like specific variations based on region, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and just could geek out. And when I look at this one, like it falls at like 99, which is like before 9-11, where I feel like a lot of horror was like reckoning with the fact that we don't have nearly as much control as we thought we did in the 90s. And the line I think that sticks out to me every time is like, you can't get lost in America yeah. now. Like we're Americans, yeah. this can't happen to us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, like in kind of the same way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of hits this like fear of the rural area or like fear of like the the uncontrolled or the wild you know Mm -hmm. that I think is the undercurrent here and that's why like it's so scary because the woods are so bare and it's not like there are bears coming out of the woods to get you it's just that like we don't know where we are we can't find the car and that's just Mm -hmm. terrifying because it's just really that lack of control and it's almost like it's weird how it kind of prefaced that fear that was like really about to explode in the early aughts you know Mm -hmm. And you have your like, you know, they they explicitly. I'm also a nerd for like uh, the hillbilly horror kind of analysis uh-huh. of like the you know <laughs> white middle class. You know, like I mean these these middle class college educated students marching into the woods to make a documentary. Mm-hmm. You know, like the right. deliverance guys marching into the rural area and then suddenly being attacked by you know the 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 primitive other right the, right the mm-hmm. of this this uh, redneck murdering, you know, I just think that it's interesting that that is, is pointed out, but never, you know, resolved. I, I don't know. I think it's obvious. I think it's, it's definitely what I would think, you know, as, mm-hmm. as much as I would not want to think that, you know, to, to own up and just say like, I would be scared that it was some just creepy family in the woods. And yeah. Right. Real. As much as I don't, you know, don't want to think that it would be like, that would be the most, yeah. 
that would be like the the cultural rise in me that would come from my you know yeah. my subconscious yeah. would be uh oh you know when everything else is stripped away yeah mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. even address that in the movie at one point where they wake up they're like look there's some people out there like some who are gonna fuck up with townspeople us. Yeah. yeah that are just fucking with us and you contrast that with like the persons they actually interview as part of the movie like. You know, they interview like a middle, like an elderly gentleman who's very polite and well-spoken. They interview like probably a more blue-collar dude in his early 20s who's also like really forthcoming and kind. You know, the closest you get to the yokels are the two guys that are fishing. (laughs) And they're more like Statler and Waldorf Mm. than anything out of Deliverance, right? I mean, they're just like there to catch a little bit of trout and have a good time and bust each other's chops. Like there's nobody that you're introduced to that seems like threatening you know, maybe that mom with the child has like a dark underbelly to her <laughs> that, you know, comes out. But like, there's no one that they interview that seems remotely threatening in mm-hmm. any way. But that's where their brain goes to. Yeah. Economic anxiety, I think. It's the economic anxiety of the late 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. almost like they knew a, Definitely. <laughs> a recession yeah. was coming. Anyway. Right. No, a uh, big old <laughs> bubble was about to burst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, can we talk a little bit about the camera and the footage and like the fact that like they get so mad because Heather won't stop shooting. Mm -hmm. And I think like one of the things that stood out to me on this watch too was like this movie is barely 90 minutes, I think, Mm -hmm. but they're in the woods for like what, seven, eight plus days, you know? And I just kept thinking like it does, it goes by so fast, but that's like a full 24 hours that they're there. Like they talk about hiking for 15 hours one day and we don't see it. And I wonder like how, how often she actually was filming. You know, I think she gets a lot mm-hmm. of unjust shit from Josh and Mike and it mm-hmm. drives me fucking insane. Cause I've gotten that mm-hmm. shit from people before. Mm-hmm. And I think, and some of it is earned. Like I imagine when, like the thing is everybody is stressed and everybody is going to be more yeah. raw, but like, if I were Heather, I would want to be filming like there's almost this this proof of what it was like. No, I really mm-hmm. did follow the map there. When we get out of this, they're going to say I lost the map. They're going to say I fucked everything up. Mm-hmm. But I've got this camera that is going to prove that I am not mm-hmm. completely to blame for this. And I just yeah. I found myself so frustrated that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think also she's using filmmaking as something to exert that lets her exert control over Mm -hmm. a situation in which she has no control. And there's the, the, like the line is one of my favorite lines from the movie where I think it's Josh has the camera and he says, I see why you like this video camera so much. It's not quite reality. Yeah. He has a little bit of an exchange with her there. And I feel like that really wormed its way into my head. That idea of like using whether it's cinema filmmaking, Mm -hmm. whether it's some kind of art or something to like put a filter between you and situations that are too difficult to process, I think it's just a really interesting theme. And I think the guys give her a bunch of shit for it because they don't have, she is like the only one with any power Mm -hmm. air Mm -hmm. quotes power in this situation because she's the director. She was the one it's her project. So they're just turning all that blame on her as a way to exert some Mm -hmm. form of control, even if it's like completely unfair, (laughs) you know, which it it is. I don't know. I, I don't have much of a deeper thought there, but what I didn't realize the first time I watched this is these are three characters that don't know one another. There's no shared history yes, between them. Right. The first time that Heather meets Josh, like Josh is showing up a half hour late and she's like, oh, it's Mr. Punctuality. And right away, like that moment, 
immediately tells you a lot of what you need to know about Heather, that like the first time she meets this person, she's going to immediately start needling him in like kind of a passive aggressive way. Like, yeah, it's cool that you're late, but it's really not cool. Mm -hmm. And then the first time she meets Mike, like they're listening to like that Sebado esque like pop song in their car. And, you know, Mike is like, and it's part where he's like, bye mom. Like that's how he says goodbye to his mother. And that part is like really kind of heartbreaking in a lot of ways, but you see like three people that don't have any history. This is Heather's passion project. Mm -hmm. When they try to bond with one another, it's a little bit forced and awkward, but the guys originally are pretty, they follow her lead mm -hmm. initially. They're accepting like, okay, this is your project. They're like, have a drink with us, you know, like go ahead and like, have a shot. And she's like to do it, like drink straight Scott from the bottle and is like, in a great little moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then she goes, does anybody have any weed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good moment. I really um, like her in that moment. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's great. Chelsea, you mentioned, like, they never sexualize her. There's yeah. never any sort of, like, romantic tension between them at all, which I really appreciate about this. There was a lot of real tension between Josh and Heather filming this to the point where the filmmakers called an audible and it was Josh that disappeared and not Mike. Really? Because... Oh, that's they were not going to be able to continue the shoot because like that scene where he's screaming at her, like, you know, give me your motivation. It's like they at that point where hit hit their like wits end with one another. And he was like, all right, if my goal is to break her down in this scene, then I am going to fucking break her down. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of real tension that went on between the three of them as you can imagine but heather and josh in particular the only defense i can give of josh and mike's behavior and this is not fully defending it is like they say like we agreed to do a well scouted shoot like you were gonna knew where everything is she had never walked this before she hadn't scouted the cemetery or any mm -hmm. of the other locations like she had gotten from a third party and a map Mm -hmm. But she had given the impression like, oh, yeah, I know where everything is. It's here. It's here. Don't worry about it. Yeah. She wanted to get it done because like to your point, Jen, like fucking woods, like how lost can you get? Just right. walk straight and then turn around and you will eventually get back. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I would. It's I a would... lot of unearned shit after, though. It's a lot of unearned over the top shit after. Yeah. No. And I and I would be for I would be frustrated in that situation. Yeah. I would you too. know. Yeah. It's it's. But yeah. At some point, it takes a turn mm -hmm. and becomes abusive yeah. and bizarre. Yeah. And, yeah. So. It's funny how the the dynamic between Josh and Mike shifts. Where Josh is initially, you know, and this is set in like ninety four, ninety five. So it's very much like grunge era. Fish share like he's just a dude that listens to a lot of fish. Yeah. For and sure. a lot of Grateful Dead. This is a dude who's played a lot of hacky sack in yeah. Josh Leonard. <laughs> so dude I would not get along with in real life, basically. <laughs> so the dynamic shifts were like Mike is originally the one, and he doesn't really direct his anger at Heather as much as like the whole situation. He's like screaming into the void, basically. And as Josh begins to crack, like Mike starts to bond a little bit more with Heather. And mm -hmm. when Josh disappears, Mike and Heather look out for one another. So yeah. like it does shift in a way that I appreciate as the movie goes on. And it feels very real. It feels like yeah. these are absolutely. And, you know, when when Josh disappears, they like she doesn't give a shit that Mike threw out the map and he doesn't give a shit that she got them into this situation. They're just like mm. literally and figuratively leaning on each other because they're scared. Mm. And it, it is it's it's a little touching, like, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. I, because they're such being such babies at various points, like when they 
earnestly are like leaning on each other. There's one moment where she's like, she goes and puts her arm around Mike and they're kind of rocking back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I really buy that. <laughs> yeah. I do too. Yeah. And it's interesting to see all of those like kind of ebb and flow mm-hmm. like they, because there's three of them. And so it's always going to be a triangle and it's just kind of yeah. weird how the points come together and a really believable It's like the way. symbol. Sorry, never mind. <laughs> it just doesn't mean anything. I just got really excited. <laughs> well, and when I think about Heather wanting everything, like, I think there's a, a defensiveness that she gets that I think really kind of rubs Mike and Josh the wrong way. And I mean, mm-hmm. if this is the mid 90s, like this is not when women were given projects like this. And I mean, still now, like, you have to be perfect because any sign of mm-hmm. weakness is going to be just an end to just get mm-hmm. all the criticism out. And so I see like her saying, no, I did everything right. I did everything right. Like not wanting to give that up at all. Whereas I think now, I mean, hopefully now the world that I want now to be would be like, yeah, I really think I'm following this map, right? Like, what do you mm-hmm. think? You know? And I think she just can't allow herself any of that because that's going to, she's going to see that as weakness on her part. And then she's going to be afraid that they're going to see it too. Yeah. You know? Well, and I guess the question too, that I've always had is like, I don't know what, the rules are of this universe. So it's like, were, was Heather, did Heather go the wrong way? Exactly. Or, not? or was mm-hmm. she confident because mm-hmm. she had good reason to be not knowing that like the world is like rearranging mm-hmm. itself around her, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And like in her speech at the end, when she's saying the things she did wrong, like, None of those were things she did wrong. Like she is caught in a world like the one I I have a lot of mixed feelings about the sequel. But the thing that I really was freaked out by is the fact that the sun doesn't come up, you know. And so she is in a world where the rules of logic don't apply anymore. And so, yes, she I mean, for all we know, she didn't do anything wrong. She did everything exactly right. And in that way, I think maybe that's the undercurrent of patriarchy that I get. It's like I feel I'm following all the rules and it, the currents are shifting mm-hmm. underneath me in a way that I can't yeah. understand. And so I'm just right. fucked either way, you know, and then it's going to be my fault, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The patriarchy, Mike. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> uh, the, I was going to say the, the <laughs> sorry, I, uh, the, I'll stop. Um <laughs> Oh God, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> I always have to go for the dumb joke like a fucking yeah, clown. I liked it. <laughs> I did too. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I was gonna say, like, I, I I think it's an absolutely fair read to say that like that they were being manipulated by some kind of yeah. occult evil force and that she did scout everything correctly. It flirts a little with that alien geometries um, idea we were talking about a few episodes ago, which again, not to bring up again, I, in a lot of ways I see, I think the reason I like Grave Encounters so much and why it's one of my favorite found footage movies, I'm realizing it has so much in common with Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. That, and that's a thing at some point, like the, the literal hospital changes around them. And that's, yeah. that's the moment where like, I get so scared in that movie and, and Blair Witch has that same feeling to me i just i feel in my heart while i'm watching it there is no way out of the woods they could yeah. walk in mm-hmm. any direction for as long as they could and they would end up at that same log you know yeah every time they take a step forward that woods expands by that step exactly is my feeling exactly it. it feels it feels very much like the novel oh my god 
god, my husband just walked up and scared the shit. Just scared the bejesus out of you. Excellent. Holy shit. Okay, sorry. Carry on. That's okay. Um, it feels like every time like they step forward, your husband steps forward as well. Just the fuck out. It's like it follows, but with Jen's husband. It feels like the novel House of Leaves, where like the dimensions of the house continuously change. Where first, like the inner and outer dimensions are off by a quarter of an inch. And then eventually like there are whole worlds that are underneath it. Yeah. I like what the sequel does in terms of like offering a sort of explanation that like, this is like not so much that there's a Blair witch, but it's like a Bermuda triangle type of place where you get aliens and Sasquatches and witches and time anomalies. And um, I just also just really like Simon Barrett as a screenwriter and Adam Mm. Wingard as a filmmaker. I just think they're tremendously fun and I'm glad they're making I'm glad that Kong versus Godzilla was success, successful enough a Wingard gets to do more things mm-hmm. because the world's a better place when he's making weirdo movies. Yeah. But I just think that like they once they stepped into the woods and they kind of showed like I would say maybe irreverence towards the legend, mm-hmm. you know, with kind of their joking and they're like, "Eh, you know, there's nothing really going on here. Giving shit to Mary Brown, too. Yeah. You know? Like that, that you don't fuck with Mary Brown. We learned one thing <laughs> tonight. That irreverence is what cost them. And the minute they like left the, left the car and walked into the woods, there was nothing they were going to do that was ever going to allow them to get out again. Like they had just sealed their, their fate at that point. And, you know. Yeah. That's my favorite shot of the entire movie is them walking away, looking at the car and I, because it lingers, you know, and I just, I have have goosebumps like literally right now, just thinking about it gives me chills. And I could just see the leaves and like, in the way Mm -hmm. it's just like crookedly, like haphazard, like just fuck it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, no one's going to find our car here. And it's like, right. Even those, yeah, I can see it's, it's, that's so weird. I've never Mm -hmm. like thought about the fact that I like that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's good filmmaking. Like they, they, every little thing hits you on a very subconscious level Mm -hmm. and it all just builds to this really great experience. Yeah. Yeah. And like when I think about um, like parking in a big parking lot and I think, okay, I have to memorize where my car is. Like it almost has that feeling because they linger on the car for a while after as they're Mm -hmm. walking away. And that's where I kind of go into the like the camera is what makes the meaning and the camera is what makes this real. And if the camera sees the car here, then it's really there. And I just imagine them thinking back to like their car in the woods. And because I Mm -hmm. this was not nearly the same thing, but I lost my car for like an hour in a parking lot one time and I was just wandering <laughs> around and it was a really hard not day, but thing. I was like, I didn't, yeah, <laughs> it was like, is my car even real anymore? You know? And I just, mm. and um, that is the last piece of the old world of their old lives. Right. right. It's like the, th- it is the threshold in a way of, yeah. of, you know, you're only bringing pieces with you now, but there's no way to get yeah. them back. Yeah, there's there are two Stephen King stories that it always makes me think about is there's the raft where they talk about like imagining their car being found on the beach Mm -hmm. of the lake. And I don't want to spoil that story because it's great. And then there's in which is like, I don't want to spoil that one either. But it's like when the camera sees something, it's there. And when the camera doesn't Mm -hmm. see it, it's not there. And it's just it's this like that's when I think about why Heather would want to film so much is that this makes it real. And this somebody else is going to see this and we're not completely lost. Like she says, it's all I have. And I think part of that is 
this is the only motivation I still have left. But I also mm-hmm. think it's like, this is what's left of me. Like, this is yeah. the thing. And like, one thing I love about found footage is we know the ending. You know, we know they're yeah. not going to make it out. Um, yeah. And so what makes it terrifying is how bad it's going to get for them, you know? And I was thinking this time, I was like, yeah, I bet they're fucking glad that she kept shooting this time because now people mm-hmm. know what's happening. And, you know, I got pretty mad at Mike and Josh when I was watching this last <laughs> night. <laughs> We all feel like we're the protagonists in our own stories as yeah. well. And by filming, there's something about the contrast as well between like the DV video they're using, which is like camcorder grade, like consumer. You could go to any Best Buy or at the time Circuit City and buy that camera. Or and Radio any, Shack. Yeah. And <laughs> any like, or yeah, any soccer dad or mom could like film their kids like playing soccer games on it as millions did. So they're using that and it's just, and that's where you're getting this hyper reality at that point of like what's going on between them. And it's ugly. And it's gritty and it's mm-hmm. grainy footage. But then you have this like beautiful 16 millimeter and you have, that's where you have the shots of the sticks like hanging in the woods. That's where a lot of the nighttime scene, and you know, what Heather is doing there is like, look, if I'm the main character in my own story, nothing bad can happen to the main character. True. So if I'm shooting this on 16 millimeter, like I'm in a film, I'm in this false reality. I'm not, this isn't real at that point. There's something that's fake about this. And at the end of the day, like I get to write and Josh even says like, are you going to write us a happy ending? Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that's they're trying to some way to say like, how do we fix this story? in order for us to get out of it and have our happily ever after. And that contrast between like the gritty DV that just looks too real with like what you would see in an art house movie, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is like really beautiful as well. That's a great touch. And I think that's really important that the film needs, if it was all the DV footage, I don't know if we're talking about this movie 21 years, 22 years later this year. Mm -hmm. The other moment that I noticed this time that I'd never noticed before is when she, at the close to the end, she puts her backpack on and Mm -hmm. her hair gets caught and she just like almost breaks down. She's like, my hair is caught. And that just is such a real moment of her just being broken Mm -hmm. and just this, and it just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. It's also um, right after she discovers Josh's ooey gooey package. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, and uh, and she she chose mm-hmm. she chose not so, yeah. she chose not to tell Mike, you know. And I yeah. thought that that was a real moment of bravery for her. Yeah. So then she's having, you know, just has that. I don't yeah. know a really good sequence of events. And that's you're not going to plan that, you know. So that was one of the few moments where the directors had to step in because when she first finds the package, I think she does a big nope and just like hucks it into the woods. (laughs) So so they actually had to radio her and they're like, you actually need to like film this. It's really important. So I love that. Like that's a very real, like she basically kicked that fucker into the river. But it works so well narratively because it's like, I can't handle this right now. I'm going to put it over there. Mm -hmm. And then it's like her curiosity Mm-hmm. gets better and I think there's a lot to say about the fact that she doesn't show Josh too no yeah. she doesn't show Mike, Mike. alright yeah. my brother's mm-hmm. name is Josh and he reminds me a lot of Mike so I yeah. always get them mixed up in my head but um, mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's like if I don't see it it's not real mm-hmm. you know yeah. I understand Mike's impetus for kicking the map into the creek I don't like him letting <laughs> Heather take the blame for it for a full day mm-hmm I think we've all had those moments of like extreme frustration. Like maybe you're trying to like just build a bookshelf and it feels like the dowels aren't there or the wrong size screws are there, or you put the shelves in backwards and you take the directions 
and you rip them into a million pieces and you're like, now I have no idea what the fuck I'm going to do. Yeah. But for that 15 seconds, it sure felt great to tear the shit out of this. Yeah. It's control. You've got control yeah. over something, you know? Yeah. For a little bit. For yeah. just that moment. But then you still have the problem that's in front of you. So I understand the impetus to kick that, to be fair, useless map. Absolutely god-awful. Like, Was it a topographical you map? Uh, who, uh, you never see it. It might have just been like a notebook page with like three stick figures. Map and quest. A, you are here. Map quest directions. Print it out. Was it? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. No. I remember that. <laughs> so... If you have no idea where you are in the woods, you're like, oh, yeah, there's this rock over, you know, like you're, you're just screwed. Like, yeah. like if anyone asks, I'll be by this vine. <laughs> he grabs yeah. that yes. vine. Right. Yes. Yeah. Those yeah. moments of humor, too. I think it's very underappreciated for like it's got what, like seven times it's funny, you know, and mm -hmm. they're just each time like like the one where they're like, what killed this mouse? Which right. Was, I love right? them. And just like, and that is that like irreverent, like, oh, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know, I will say on Heather's behalf as well, um, she goes looking for Josh with like every fiber of her being yeah. after mm -hmm. he disappears. Like, and I hadn't really thought of that until just like thinking, you know, about about this right now. But you know, it, it's she runs into that house to find Josh, to try mm -hmm. to save Josh. Like that is her only motivation. She's not looking for help. She's ignoring Mike, you know, who is, is safer in that moment. So she's mm -hmm. going to save this, this dude. And she, you know, and she dies for it really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why I came to appreciate her character by the end of it is like she, she does kind of start off like annoying and pompous, but she, she really under duress does all the right things, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm really proud of her by the end of it. Like, I would want her in my apocalypse pod, you mm -hmm. know, even yeah. if we would all just get killed by whatever. But, yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful performance. I think it's a really underrated performance. It doesn't get appreciated enough. And I think aside from this, like she had a short-lived sitcom um, that, like, maybe lasted half a season and did a couple other movies, but quickly left Hollywood Josh yeah. Leonard, as we did Unsane last week, which he's in. I still can't believe that's Josh I know. Leonard. Yeah. Yeah. I can't either. <laughs> and yeah. I think Mike Mike is like a high school guidance counselor now. He's, is, uh, are you him? Yeah, <laughs> is this where you reveal that you're that Mike? I am, I am oh God. that guy. I did make it out that of the That would woods. be amazing. I would like, no wonder you body. know so much. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, you know, on that note, say, I killed those fuckers. Um, <laughs> there killed. are like those readings of the movie where like Josh and and Mike actually said, fuck it. And then like killed Heather. Like there are those I readings of it. I just heard that last yeah. week at a gathering. Somebody was like, have you heard these theories that Josh and Mike killed Heather? And yeah. I and then, you know, it was just, I was like, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, mean, I don't necessarily, I don't actually think that's true at all, but I just yeah. never, it had never dawned on me to even yeah. consider it, but I don't think it's true. No. But it's sparse enough that it could, like I yeah. could read that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that's Definitely. this movie's strength is it's sparse it enough is. that you can just read things into it, but it, mm -hmm. they give you enough so that it's not like an empty picture. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, and so I wanted to, talking about Heather, like I found this essay that she wrote when the the movie, the new Blair Witch was released. Mm -hmm. And I pulled a couple of things because it just, I don't know if broke my heart is the right way, but it made me empathize with her so much as like a human being and not like the character in the movie. And one thing she said, this was when she found out that it was going to, that it was going to exist. And she said, nothing I do will ever surpass what I did at 24 
my name and face are forever going to be someone else's intellectual property, which really, I had to read, read that sentence again because it really got me. My snot-flooded portrait was back. It's all anyone wanted to talk to me about. I bawled more, refilled the bath, stared at the wall. Like, I, she got so much shit after this yeah. role. And I think, like, we're at the point now where we are kind of reappraising, you know. And, I mean, that's a lot of what we've done tonight. But the other thing that I wanted to read was kind of what we were talking about. Like, they were not allowed to promote any of this. They had to actually pretend to be dead. Mm-hmm. And she said, it was the collaborative spirit of production that made my death. Death, the movie death feel especially violent it's a strange thing to get no credit where credit is deeply due by strange i mean shitty we were supposed to be really scared so we weren't actors all of us were formally trained we improvised all dialogue from an outline but we weren't writers we shot it and independently provided the impetus for many of the scenes you see in the film but we were not directors while this work became record-breakingly profitable what we were was dead which i just thought was So I know I had never thought about it. Like I thought about they didn't get the credit they were deserved, but it was like, I didn't realize how much it would have Mm -hmm. been. I'm sorry. I'm tripping over words because it just gets me. It's a little traumatic. I mean, it's like if you, if you die in a movie and everyone thinks you're dead, it's like, it's like you're in a way it is like witnessing your own funeral and you are Mm -hmm. dead to the world for at least a little while. And that's a bit of a traumatic event. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't yeah. I have any more sentence. Oh. That was the end of the sentence. So, I think I said, eh, at the end. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The therapist in me looks at the line like, nothing will surpass what I did at 24 in my name and face. It's like someone else's intellectual property. The therapist in me immediately wants to like flip that around and be like, you've given the world something that they're going to remember forever. Like you put this like, not just this movie, like that's going to live forever, but this movie that created a phenomenon that was something that like so few people get to do mm-hmm. and launched like a whole other style of filmmaking. And like, you did that, like other people have made movies in this style, but they've fallen off the face of the earth because they don't measure up to what you were able to do. Mm-hmm. And this is just like one moment in time that you did that. You're going to have other moments in life that maybe don't have the same impact globally, but personally and you know, like I said, she's a weed farmer now. And from what I understand, she's written books about it and Mm -hmm. seems to like really enjoy doing that. And has found her calling and like, this was just a job. Yeah. Well, and Chelsea, you'd say, said this could never happen again. And I think you're completely right. And I also, part of me thinks maybe this shouldn't happen again, you know, given what happened with them. Like, I'm glad we have this perfect movie. But then I think about like, the cost of it. And I think maybe the lessons like I could take from this if I were a filmmaker is don't use their real names, you know, don't Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. so closely align them with the person and out the character in the movie. And while I think that's what gives this movie a lot of its power and why we are still talking about it, like I think of about a movie like Paranormal Activity where they are actors and I think they use their first the real first names yeah. but it's yeah. not so closely no. like they didn't pretend to be dead after that right. you know um, no they were trotted out and they're also like Katie Featherstone has never really had a large career outside of the four paranormal activity movies she's been in and she's awesome in those yeah. movies um a lot of this movie lives in the editing like they shot over 20 hours of footage and cut it down to 80 minutes and there literally is an unwatchable 
cut of this movie that's like three hours long was the first thing they showed. And it's a lot of them walking in the woods going, we're still lost. Yeah. And I think if you had to watch three hours of that, like I would hang myself from one of those Blair Witch <laughs> icons at that point. Yeah. As much, so a lot of like the success of this movie also lives in what Myrick and Sanchez did in the editing room mm-hmm. to make it yep. watchable. And neither of those gentlemen, like Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez have gone on to have like massive, they they took a movie that was like 40 grand and they made $250 million on it. And yet they weren't able to parlay that into like much bigger careers. Like everything they, they wanted to do a romantic comedy after this. And they're like, no, make Blair Witch 2 instead. And they're like, we don't want to do that. Yeah. Like that's not what we're interested in. And um, Joe Berlinger who directed the sequel, like he, hates this movie he found it offensive as a documentary filmmaker that you were doing this kind of like fake entertainment you were taking like what he does for a living in almost like parody making a parody of it so that's why like Blair Witch 2 is in Blair Witch 2 is actually one of the few movies that has ever made me like angry I hate that movie <laughs> and I know there's like a Berlinger cut of it and I'm sure it's still just as shitty. Probably. He's a great documentary <laughs> filmmaker and he's done great work, but oh my God, you can tell the distaste that he has for this movie in every frame of his it work. It does feel very angry. Yeah, it is in that movie flop. So there you go, dude. Well, here's like a, a fun caveat on that is that when I, again, referencing when I got to interview mm-hmm. him, uh, I did not know how much he loathed mm-hmm. the Blair Witch Project. So I came in like real hot, like, oh my God, you did the Blair Witch too. I can't believe it. And, you know, and he just immediately was like, you could tell that it just like soured him on me immediately. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the best interview of my life. But like, he, uh, <laughs> but what he said that at the time I was like, oh my God. And now I'm still, I'm like a more like a like, oh, okay, is that he, compared it to like that it launched our fake news problem Mm -hmm. and like I think that that's a little dramatic in terms of like it being right but like I think then if you take that because of course what we do on our show is also conspiracy theories which has been an insane Mm -hmm. time to be doing this show so Mm -hmm. like if you take this could never happen again Blair Witch uh could it happen again though just because Mm -hmm. Right now in our culture, we're so spun off into just like outrageous thinking that actually someone could come along and make a QAnon movie and and could Mm -hmm. create all this universe around it. In fact, it already happens in other ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like people are putting up memes and making millions of dollars. They're spending very like a small amount of money putting up memes, creating an entire lore that is just recycled lore and, Mm -hmm. and putting it back out again. And people are, you know taking it hook, line, and sinker. So maybe it can happen again. It'll just maybe. be a little more sinister. Uh, yeah. It'll, it'll all be an, a non-fungible token. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Can we start? Well, and I think part of why I think this movie kind of exists so singularly is if they go on to be huge directors or if Heather Donahue has this huge career, she's not she's an actress in this movie now. She's not really Heather. She's not like, it. it's like, it almost takes away some of the power of the movie, you know, which I guess 
it's just the price of having such a fantastic movie. Like it, it is perfect. And I, I don't want to knock the fact that it exists, but it's I've just- got a note here. Yeah. From my other show, like when people realize that it was just a fictional movie, because the backlash against this movie hit really hard, mm-hmm. like within a month, like everyone said, go see this movie. And then everybody that did go see like, what are you talking about? Like there was an immediate backlash against it. And it's almost like once people realize that like it was a fictional movie and not an actual snuff film, like people thought they were seeing like, oh, it's faces of death, but real. Yeah. They felt like they were cheated out of like seeing that. Mm-hmm. And when they were like, oh, this is entertainment. Like you tricked me. Mm-hmm. It's like knowing the tricks of a magician or it's like, the first time I found out wrestling was fake when I was like 42 <laughs> years old, I was really, um, I was really sad. And this was like, when this came out, like this is at a time when I was like watching WWF when Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I'm like, I want to believe it's real, mm-hmm. you know, even though I knew it wasn't, I want to believe. You really um, thought the undertaker came yeah. from hell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he does. In her, <laughs> Heather Donahue's quote, people thinking I was dead, didn't do anything good for my career. Yeah. Um, people really were upset that she wasn't dead and they felt because they felt like they were cheated or lied to at that point. Yeah. Which is really fucked up. Yeah, because it's like, I think it's so fun. Like, being had is, like, kind of fun. Right. When it's not dangerous. Like, when it's just, like, this movie versus, like, oh, I'm being had on, like, a political point or something. But it's, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's Right. It just, it would never piss me off. It would only make me go, like, like when I figure out that I tell an urban legend accidentally, it's like, ah, you know, (laughs) oh, right. It's fun. Because it's more fun to believe, you know, as long as, like you said, as long as it's not hurting people. And I think that's why that conspiracy theory thing, like it keeps cycling and it's so like insidious and addictive because it's just, it's easier to believe something. And, you know, and and that's also, yeah, it's like, sure, Blair Witch did it on the biggest scale, but that was going to, I mean, the the idea of fake news and the perpetuation Mm -hmm. of misinformation, the internet, was going to ensure that that would happen on an unprecedented scale regardless. Like, unless we avoided the technology somehow, that was going to happen. Um, Or rewired our entire human psychology. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, oh, maybe it's our fault. Maybe we just need to take blame collectively for this instead of pointing our finger at a horror movie, you know? (laughs) Totally. I mean, I think there is something to be said with, like, internet culture that we can very much, like, it's very easy to escape to your own bubble. Like you can find a niche of people who believe what you believe and you can stick to that. And there's something very safe and comforting about that, but there's also something very dangerous about that. Like it becomes more and more difficult. Like I would say that there are people that I know better online that have never seen face to face. I know them better than I know the people who live like directly across the street mm-hmm. from me at this point. And there's something maybe a little bit, sad and maybe even a little bit dangerous about the way that we communicate now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're selecting our, our bubble Mm -hmm. much more than we ever have had the power to do before, which can sometimes be fantastic and Mm -hmm. sometimes be really dangerous, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I I think you, you have a less shared experiences now, less shared cultural milestones. Not everybody isn't going to the like nightly news for their news. They're, picking and choosing where they get information from, which I don't know. I'm going to prevent myself from going down that rabbit hole. I think (laughs) there's a a really interesting thought there, but I'm not even going to. It's too big. It's too big. 
Well, and so on that line, is there anything else we want to mention about the Blair Witch Project that we have not already shouted out or mentioned other than that scared I'm the good. fuck out of me? <laughs> only, only thing I have, if you go into YouTube, search out, it's from, it's called, uh, the show is called Split Screen with John Pearson. It ran on the IFC channel. It's basically, in search for that with Blair Witch Project, it's basically a 10 minute short and it lays out the mythology of the Blair Witch Project before the movie was like fully scripted and formed. And it's one of those things like when it aired on the IFC channel, like message message boards lit up at that point, there was all these like investigations into it. And they knew like we have something here, like people were trying to quote unquote solve the mystery. It's on YouTube. If you want to see like this movie distill, distill like the demo version of it, it's really cool. And there's some stuff in that's a lot of stuff in there that's not in the other marketing material, but it's like a fascinating like 10 minute watch. So it was like split screen with John Pearson and you can find it on YouTube pretty easily. I'm going to link it also. Well, and on that note, and now it's time for an uplifting moment. Um, This is where we share any grounding and coping techniques that have been particularly effective for us or any self-care we've been using recently. Grounding and coping techniques are little tips, tricks, practices, mantras that help us get through tough days or tough moments. And self-care is anything we do with the intention of making ourselves feel good or feel better. And I... Oh, this has been like I've got I'm moving and the end of tax season is happening and I'm like just so many fucking things in my life are changing right now and it's just I don't handle change very well. So I've been struggling a little bit. I also hate change. I know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all good change is the thing. It's just like the ground is shaking. Um, And so I just tweeted that out the other day and Ryan Larson was very kind and he he was um, a guest on our scream episode he sent me a playlist and it has this frank ocean cover of moon river that is just my new favorite song i love the song moon river like the the old one and it's just so calming and soothing so i wanted to give him a shout out uh thank you for sending me that and also this cover is just so good and it just like hits in that like still kind of cool but also very soothing kind of vibe you know so it's awesome. Does anyone else care to share? I guess uh, what I've been doing for a lot of the pandemic and still do is I go for walks every morning. So I, I get up at like 630, which is outrageous compared to <laughs> my my past. You know, it's mm. like there's something about the pandemic, I feel, that turned us all elderly, um, at least <laughs> oh, yeah. for myself. Mm. Um, like I've been bird watching. I've been identifying local plants. You know, I've Aww. been like, there's this rabbit this domesticated rabbit that I visit every day that lives in the park, you know, just like these very like old person things. <laughs> and, but I think there's something like, I don't know, there's just something about uh, doing the same thing every day, like the same route where you get to know, I mean, your neighborhood, yes, but like you see the same animals, you see the same, like you see things change really slowly and Mm -hmm. you see the same people and there's just something about that that's like very meditative to do the same route every morning and just like let that be a space where I don't think about anything except the true crime podcast I'm listening to, (laughs) which is part of it. 
I have done a ton of pandemic walks and I, oh, yeah. I have a similar thing with there's this one cat. There's this cardinal couple that I see. <laughs> I, they're, they're married. It's a, and I, they have a whole backstory for them. It's yeah. It's oh, like, I have that with a woodpecker couple actually. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Also, I've been seeing two times now I've seen a bald eagle eating <gasps> a seagull what? on a football field. What? <gasps> the most American. Twice? Yes. It's Holy the same. Shit. There's an eagle couple, and two times now on my route, I've seen one of these eagles just ripping the guts out of a seagull in the middle of a high school football field. So it's just like, God bless America. Yeah, that's like a heavy metal image. Yeah. Album cover, (laughs) like from the 80s. Oh my God. Yeah. So for me, like, work has gotten bananas. There's officially like 20 days left in the school year. Uh, and the counseling load outside of there has gotten like pretty to the point where I'm like, I think I need to cut back and maybe actually let a few folks go at this point, which is not something I'm like super thrilled about, but for my own well-being. So my head gets filled with noise and chatter basically all day, like all the things I need to do because middle schoolers are like, they're a needy bunch of kids, man. <laughs> So one of the things I've been doing is like trying to get rid of that noise by like stopping and doing this kind of like one minute long meditative technique where I just listen to everything else that's going on around me and just try to like write down everything that I can hear. And it allows the thoughts in my head to kind of go away. So it's things like things I wouldn't notice, like the air conditioning ducts that are going Doors opening, closing down the hallway, the um, phones ringing in the admin officer's room, like the person in the office next to me speaking. And it's just like trying to really focus on every sound that's around me and allow like that chatter that's going on in my head to like dim itself down and empty itself out and then rebuilding those thoughts in my head, like, but one at a time at that point. So they're not overlapping with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's something you can do in a minute. And you start to notice a lot of little things that maybe you wouldn't notice otherwise. Um, And I find it like a really easy one to do. And it's one that I do with like a lot of the kids I work with when their brains start to get a bit overflowing in the classroom Mm -hmm. to like, really like practice listening to what else is going on in the world around you. I love that. I do too. Um, The only thing that I have going on besides work and all the other stuff that I do every day in my apartment alone is I started, I think I mentioned that I started that pottery class. That's very small. Everyone wears masks. Um, I made my first mug and it has a face. Yes. I love him. I'm going to post him. It's the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life, but it's, it's exactly what I wanted out of a class like that. It's um, it's small, it's chill and I get to play with clay. And after the last year, I don't know, it's just, it's so there, it is genuinely therapeutic. And I'm mm-hmm. this, it's like, I'm really trying to focus on, it doesn't matter what I make. There's a lot of people in the class who are like really good at pottery already. And I'm like, fuck you, get, get mm. out of my fucking face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> but I'm really trying not to focus on that. I'm just like playing with clay and yeah. I love it. I really love it. Oh. It's awesome. They mad that they didn't get to play clay really professionally. <laughs> yeah, that face you said. Like, I would drink from this mug. I was staring at it. Definitely. I'm gonna make a bunch of like unhappy looking mugs, and then they're the kind you can also like face 
it toward whoever you're talking to or on your mm-hmm. Zoom call, you know, and just force someone else to look into its dead eyes. Yeah. Yo, mean mugs. Mean mugs. Yes. <gasps> That's branding <laughs> genius. Oh my God. Can I use that? <laughs> Please. I don't have time. So I'll credit you. <laughs> I'll credit you. Sit on a gold mine. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. I love it. Yeah, I was trying to think of some kind of grumper mug stall thing to go with your yeah me mugs me says it all perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we want to know what you think. Have you ever gotten lost in the woods? Do you enjoy making creepy stick crafts? Uh, Chelsea, I am still geeking out over the fact that you would leave those on people's tents. I think that mm-hmm. is amazing. <laughs> I think I'll start it up again. <laughs> yeah, <Nope. laughs> you can blame it on that eagle couple. You know, be yeah, like, no, it was them. <laughs> Just carnage. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is your current self-care or anything else that you want to share with us? You can share answers to all of these questions and more by following us at Psycho A Pod on all of the socials and looking out for prompts. And you can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. This is a private and moderated group where we share about episodes, mental health topics, or anything else on our mind. Or you can email us at psychoapod.com at gmail.com if you would like to share privately. And our homework question for today is, tell us, have you ever gotten lost in the woods? What's the most lostest you've ever been? (laughs) Or what are your creepy campy stories? Campy, camping stories. Creepy campy stories. That's a whole other. (laughs) That's true. That's John Waters. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I was wandering around Baltimore. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us your, your spooky wood stories and I'll post a prompt for that probably. Well, we'll see. I guess we'll find out. So next up for us, we are kicking off a new mental health topic because we have a new month and we are celebrating a particular June holiday by spending the month on the topic of bad dads. So can't imagine I'll have anything to say no. about that. <laughs> Who could um, have anything to say about that? Oh, I know. <laughs> <sighs> um, and we're starting off with a movie. And I actually didn't pick this topic, so it wasn't just my excuse to talk about my own dad. But <laughs> we are starting off with a movie that I have not seen in a long time, and I can't wait to revisit it. 1987's The Stepfather. So it holds up. Does it? Oh, I, haven't. It, I just wa- rewatched it. It holds up. I'm excited. So get ready to hear some variation of who am I here about 5,000 mm. times in that episode. I'm <laughs> just get, gearing get myself ready up. ready to hear like two hours of Terry O'Quinn boners because Ooh. it's oh. going to make the Chris Sarandon love that went on for the Fright <laughs> Night. Terry O'Quinn in this movie is just, yeah, does, a couple oh, good looks Does he there. wear sweaters? I can't remember. I was say, if he wears a sweater, he wears, <laughs> uh Yeah, there's definitely some sweater wearing. I think there's like ascot wearing at some point, or there's definitely a scally cap wear mm, at some mm, point. So, mm. yeah, I love it's going to be a fun show. Strap in. Yes, so excited for that. Uh, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network, and you can find us here and there along with many other fantastic pods by going to consequence.net. And Chelsea, where can we find you online and what is coming up for American Hysteria? Well, uh, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, you can find 
let's see, social media, you can find us on Twitter at Amer Hysteria and then on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. Uh, we're also on Facebook at American Hysteria Podcast, but only at the bare minimum. So it's not really <laughs> the fun one because uh, yeah. I'm scared of it. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, I don't know why yeah. I'm not scared of Twitter. Jesus. Anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And coming up for our show, we just ended our fourth season, but we will be putting out mini episodes and interviews still throughout the summer uh, while we work on some other stuff, but we'll be here. And I have to say it just, it was such a fantastic season. I love all of your episodes, but um, in particularly relevant to our listeners, like you just did two episodes on horror movies, which Mm -hmm. are like Mm -hmm. amazing. And then the episode on urban legends, I actually cried at the end because it's so good. Well, I'm (laughs) glad. Favorite one. Oh yeah. I'm so glad. I'm, I appreciate that. Yeah. My mom's in that one. You guys, she tells her (laughs) bunny man stories. So if you want to hear my mom talk on a podcast, you'll hear it there. That's just (laughs) amazing. (laughs) Um, and Mike, where can we find you? So you can hear, uh, my other show, the pod and the pendulum along with co-host Lindsay Travis, everywhere that you get your podcasts. Uh, We just are wrapping up the Evil Dead franchise. So we are a show that covers all horror movie franchises, one movie uh, and one episode at a time. So we've just done four shows on the Evil Dead series. Uh, We had Matt Donato on for the Evil Dead remake, which we haven't recorded yet, but it's a great episode. Uh, I can tell you that already. (laughs) Incredible. So we have a bunch of good stuff coming up. Like we're going to be diving into the conjuring verse next. So we have seven movies lined up in the conjuring. We're going to, it looks like we're going to have like a bonus episode soon with Josh Rubin, the writer director of scare me on shutter to talk about his new werewolf movie. Um, So we're pretty excited to talk to him about that. And yeah, a bunch of fun stuff coming up for that show. So everywhere that you get your podcast, you can find us. Find me at Mike underscore Snoonian on Twitter. And I will reply and follow with like pithy remarks and wise <laughs> and general jackassery, basically. So nice. Laura, where can we find you? Oh, uh, you can find me. I, I've really locked myself into a a problem here. Okay, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> At Underalls, that's U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, much like the uh, soiled Carhartt long johns that you've been wearing for seven days while backpacking around a woods that just doesn't seem to stop no matter how far you walk in any direction. You're just there crapping in your Carhartt long johns. That's at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S on Twitter. um, And you can can find me here on this podcast and... uh, occasionally on the losers club and i was recently on the scream 2 episode of halloweenies which is i believe going to be two parts two screams two parts scream 2 two episodes yeah hear me, hear me great talk. scream great scream scream it's yes. a, yeah it. It, was, it was a really mm-hmm. fun episode mm-hmm. to record we literally recorded i think for four hours so nice. if they had to split it into two episodes <laughs> and you can find me at jim Ferratu on all of the socials and you can also find me on the Losers Club podcast um, talking all things Stephen King. I just did a Firestarter commentary where I just predictably lost my mind over Charlie because I love her. And we're <laughs> gearing up for Lisey's story coverage. So check that out. And yeah, so that's our episode on the Blair Witch Project. Yay! Yay. <laughs>
<laughs> I had so much fun watching this movie. I actually watched it twice last night and talking about it. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. thank you so much for choosing this movie. It just made me so happy. Oh, well, I, I love, love talking to you guys. It was so interesting. It's, I never, uh, it always is so exciting to find people who care this much about something <laughs> so particular. So I really appreciate it, you guys. Thank you. That's us, all right. That's yeah. the nicest way we've ever been called nerds. I think. <laughs> hey, I like to, you know, I like yeah. to be nice. <laughs> and listeners, thank you for spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And we're, and we're all out of bubble, bubble gum. gum. <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network.